0: Welcome to Tech Refactored, a podcast in which we explore the ever-changing relationship between technology, society, and the law. I'm your host, Gus Horwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. Today is February 13, 2023. We don't usually start our episodes with the date, but one week ago today, on February 6th, Turkey and Syria experienced a devastating magnitude 7.8 earthquake. As of today, over 36,000 people are reported to have been killed in this disaster, a number that is likely to continue to increase in coming days. Millions are homeless. International rescue efforts are underway in most of the affected area, but have already been called off in parts of Syria affected by civil war. This is an incredible human tragedy and natural disaster. Our focus in our discussion today isn't the day-to-day developments or news about this earthquake. This, of course, isn't meant to diminish the human toll of the disaster. When we see headlines like 7.8 magnitude earthquake shakes Turkey and Syria, we know something bad has happened. But most of us don't really know what it is that has happened. What is an earthquake? Why do they happen? And why are they so dangerous? I'm joined today by Dr. Cara Burberry, a structural geologist and associate professor in the Earth and Atmospheric Sciences Department here at the University of Nebraska. Cara, welcome to Tech Refactored. Thank you. So your field is structural geology. Yes, that's correct. I expect most people don't know what structural geology is. So could you uh, just start by telling us what is a structural geologist?
1: Well, the way I explain it to my students, my 100-level class, is that rocks are normally laid down horizontally. And in my eyes, they don't get interesting until some forces have been applied to those rocks and they get all bent up and squiggly. And the structural geologist studies the forces and the bent up and squiggly that make them in my book much more interesting.
0: So we're used to, or at least I'm used to thinking of rocks as big, hard, solid things that don't move much and don't bend much. But it turns out that with enough forces, they can move and they can bend.
1: Correct. But again, I think that you and I are probably having a timescale difference here. I'm talking about forces that might be applied over, generally, very long periods of time. When we're talking about the kind of rate of application of these forces, I'm talking about the rate that your fingernails grow.
0: So over a period of many years, a rock will move or bend millimeters, we're talking.
1: Millions of years, a rock will move or bend centimeters. Okay. To correct you, <laughs> yes, so, because I am pedantic.
0: Yes, and uh, orders of magnitude. And that, that's what we're talking about, orders of magnitude. So, if you were to explain to a colleague or perhaps a, a student in one of your classes what happened with the Turkey earthquake, how would you go about explaining in relatively simple terms what happened there?
1: This is one of those experiences that has happened where the Rocks that were originally reasonably coherent and stuck together have a break in them that has moved not on that millions of year millimeters at a time, centimeters at a time time scale, but incredibly quickly. so rather than sliding your hands past each other very, 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 very slowly, you are moving your hands very, very fast, very very quickly, releasing all the energy that I was originally talking about over, again, millions of years, centimetres at a time, in that amount of time, Mm -hmm. very quickly.
0: And we'll... uh talk a bit more about the mechanisms behind earthquakes. And I'm not an expert here, I expect that there are multiple different types of earthquakes or causes of them and get into uh, some of those variations as well. Before we get into some of the details of earthquakes, and I shouldn't make puns, but dig down into the subject, um, I I apologize. I wonder, just uh, reflecting on the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, when you hear a, a headline, like 7.8 magnitude earthquake in a populated area. So not this one in particular, but just in general. Can you walk me through how you think about what you have just heard, what that news headline means to an expert in the field?
1: The expert in the field and the human being are usually at war with one another. In a person like me and in a lot of the colleagues that I have seen commenting on Twitter, the expert in me is... I hate to say it, but the expert in me is excited that we have a big event. Typically, these big events happen on areas of a break in the rock on a fault that have not moved in hundreds of years. So the expert in me is thinking, this is a chance to get all kinds of new shiny data. The human being in me is thinking, oh, no, not again, because the human being in me knows that the bigger the number on a scale of zero to nine, the bigger the number, the worse it is, and nines are almost unheard of, so really it's a scale of zero to eight, if you assume that nine is very much unheard of, it's really a scale of zero to eight and a bit. 7.8 is really, 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 really bad in a populated area. Oh, dear God, not again.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's get into the topic of what is an earthquake. So you explained before that it's when you have this large amount of energy that ordinarily is operating on a geologic time scale just in a very short period of time all being released. What are different types of earthquakes? What causes them? Is it, in, in my mind, it sounds like or it seems like it's something breaking. I'm used to thinking I'm, I've got a piece of wood and I'm slowly bending it and it bends until it suddenly breaks. Is that what happens with an earthquake?
1: It's a good analogy. It's a really good place to start because the release of energy is the break. And typically, the fault line in the rock, which is the break, has been building up stress, which is the bending and bending and bending of your piece of wood over a period of, well, in the case of, I'll use turkey and Thria as our example, that Segment, that piece of that fault doesn't look like it had broken since sometime in the 1800s, so odds on 200 years. And as the structure or your piece of wood bends and bends and bends and bends and bends, it gets more and more and more and more unhappy, and then it will snap, and the snap is the release of energy. Different types of earthquakes, different ways of the earth releasing stress. Geologic stress, you can pull something apart, tension, you can push it together, compression, or you can slide it side by side. And so those three ways of breaking a rock give you a different signal in terms of the energy released.
0: And different processes within the earth cause all three of those different types of events to happen. Yes. In the case of Turkey and Syria, do we know what the mechanism was?
1: In Turkey, Syria, it was strike slip or sliding side by side on a strand or two of what we know as the East Anatolian fault system.
0: Okay. Can you unpack that a little bit for me? (laughs) absolutely
1: can. So, let's start at the beginning, which is that I've mentioned a couple of times, a break in a rock is called a fault. Typically, you draw that on a map as a straight line. Let's go back to your piece of wood example. When you bend and break a piece of wood, does it break cleanly along one single line?
0: No, it kind of splinters.
1: It kind of splinters. All right. So a fault is never a single line. It's a series of splinters, which we would refer to as strands. Mm -hmm. The East Anatolian fault system is a collection of these strands, which you sometimes hear referred to as a fault system if it's on a big scale, like halfway across Turkey, or a fault zone if it was the size of the table I'm sitting at.
0: So it can literally be that small.
1: It could be that small.
0: So I I know I saw a couple of just really remarkable photos from Turkey. The most striking one was of a railroad track, which ordinarily these are, these run in a straight line. Trains need to go Mm -hmm. in a straight line. And this one was just bent into an S. It's like you took the two tracks that were running in a straight line and shifted a part of it by about 10 foot and kind of smashed them together a little bit. Is that what we're talking about?
1: So in your train track example, you have The straight line of the train track, you need to imagine that the fault break, the straight line of the fault is running perpendicular to the train track, and you have shoved one side of the train track one way, one side of the train track the other way, Mm -hmm. without actually breaking the train track, which is why it gets that S-shape. Right. And train tracks are designed not to break, they're designed to bend, which is... A feature of an engineering.
0: Right. So you, you'd uh, used the term, I think, shearing before. Yes. Is, is that what that is? Shearing. There? Yes. You said uh, 200 years. How often do earthquakes happen?
1: That is one of those wonderful questions that I'm going to give you a Britishism. How long is a piece of string?
0: Depends on how long you cut it.
1: <laughs> Correct. So we would love that is one of the holy grails of seismology. We would love to be able to predict when the next earthquake will happen on a particular fault, and what we can usually give you is that the next earthquake on X fault will happen sometime between next Wednesday and the next 200 years. And to a geologist that's great, Mm -hmm. because geologic time, but to a human person, human timescale, that is really kind of not helpful. So. Sometimes we talk a little bit about a recurrence interval. How many times do these earthquakes come back? Is an average time between earthquakes calculable? That is a bit of a horrid measure because actually the standard deviations are so big your error bars are nasty. hmm so what is more valuable is a probability that an event of such and such a magnitude will occur on this fault in any given year Mm -hmm. and then you get a sort of it's a one percent chance that is something that is also very difficult to calculate because we don't have great records in some parts of the world Mm -hmm. sometimes we have half a record from one place and half a record from a different place. The great example is the orphan tsunami, which was an earthquake that happened on the west coast of North America, Cascadia. Earthquake wasn't recorded except in indigenous histories, which are not always considered. The tsunami, the wave that was created, was felt in Japan and was recorded. The two sides didn't meet and mesh their stories because mm-hmm. two native stories
0: seem completely unrelated to seem each completely other, right? unrelated
1: but to each other so
0: that there's some archaeology and history here uh, exactly. as well so th- there's a, a puzzle there going back to the analogy of me breaking a piece of wood mm-hmm. which is once you've broken that piece of wood it's broken from the earthquake perspective i've released that energy isn't the earthquake done? Isn't the energy released? Why do they keep happening?
1: They keep happening because the surface of the Earth, the tectonic plates, keep moving and are constantly in motion. So the big earthquakes like the 7.8 on the East Anatolian fault system, which we've just been talking about, like the event on Cascadia that I just mentioned, happen on plate boundaries, which are biggest faults around. And therefore, because the tectonic plates keep moving, the boundary is constantly building up stress. So you've got two pieces of wood now, and now you're going to start bending each individual piece of wood.
0: A couple of terminology questions for you. We've spoken a bit about uh, what a fault is and what a fault system is. This might be a painful question. Is a fault zone a thing?
1: That's one of those you pays your money and you takes your choice. I like the term because in my work, I have spent some time demonstrating that the single fault strand doesn't break cleanly, even if, and again, I'm going to go back to your piece of wood analogy because I like it, you break your piece of wood, the little splinters If you zoomed in with a microscope, with a hand lens, you would see that each splinter had smaller splinters around it. Mm -hmm. In my work, we describe that as a damage zone. And so the fault break and the damaged bit around it is what I would consider a fault zone.
0: Mm -hmm. Right.
1: Some people argue with that description because, well... The uh, collective noun for a group of geologists is a disagreement of geologists.
0: <laughs> I think that that applies in many fields, um, actually. <laughs> yeah. It's the nature of the, the scientific process to, to have disagreements. Um, what's an epicenter?
1: So an epicenter is the point on the surface directly above the point in the ground where the earthquake actually started. Mm-hmm. So one, scientists talk about the focus or the hypercenter, as the point where the earthquake actually started.
0: So that, that's where the break that's in the where rocks That's where the break happened.
1: actually happened, yes. And that's usually 10, 20 kilometers deep in the earth. But you need to be able to plot a point on a map. And that is the epicenter, the point on the map.
0: From a, a human perspective, how relevant is the epicenter? Is that where you're going to feel the earthquake the most?
1: Likely. The closer you are to the epicenter, generally the worse it is. The hypercenter is probably irrelevant to the human beings who are feeling it. They care about where they are on the surface.
0: Mm, right. And what is a magnitude? And also, for that matter, do we measure the magnitude at the focus point or at the epicenter?
1: Technically, we measure the moment magnitude, which is shorthanded to magnitude at the focus point or the hypocenter. We used to use the Richter scale, which is what most people think of. It's an
0: important public service announcement. We no longer use the Richter scale and haven't for decades. (laughs)
1: <laughs> because that's what you were probably taught in your intro to geology class, that we use the Richter scale. But the, and the Richter scale is a broad measure of the energy released in an earthquake. The moment magnitude is a better measure of the energy released because it combines not only energy released, but length of fault that was ruptured or broken. So it looks at the area of the break the area of the fault that was broken, because the area of the fault that was broken is usually a lozenge shape. Mm -hmm. The Richter magnitude is a much simpler calculation and unfortunately less accurate.
0: Mm, Right. So when you hear something like a 7.8 or a less uh, extreme 6.0 magnitude um, earthquake, does the depth of the epicenter impact, how impactful that's going to be, or how broadly it's going to be felt. If it's a a deeper epicenter, is it going to be felt over a wider area? I'm thinking uh, the kind of energy radiating out like a sphere. So you've got a larger radius, it's going to be a a larger area, but that would also dissipate the energy over a wider area. Is that accurate in this context?
1: You're thinking along the right lines. There's a, a few more things that need to go into it, not just depth and energy dissipating, but also rock type because if you have hard rock, really solid rock that's crystalline, then it rings a bit like a bell and earthquake waves can travel a long, long way. If you have rock that is easily non-consolidated, it's kind of like sand and gravel, then the earthquake waves just get trapped in that and reverberate back and forth. Mm -hmm. So, one of the things, I'm going to divert back to Turkey and Syria again, one of the things that was so damaging about the Turkey and Syria events, especially the main paired events, were that they were so, so, so shallow, 7 to 10 kilometers in one case, which is incredibly shallow, that neither could the energy dissipate The rock type is such that neither of those factors really matter because it Mm -hmm. doesn't have anywhere to go. It's
0: just right there. It's
1: just right there.
0: You mentioned that it wasn't a single event in uh, Turkey and Syria. There uh, were many aftershocks, as I understand, including a couple that were pretty significant. Um, What are aftershocks?
1: So I'm going to go back to your Breaking the piece of wood again. Think about when you bend and break that piece of wood. Think about it in, if you videoed it in slow or recorded it in slow motion. What you would see is that you would snap the piece of wood and then you would see that it would vibrate up and down a few times as it kind of came to terms with the fact that it was now two pieces of wood. Mm-hmm. Aftershocks are the East, in this system, are the East Anatolian fault. Coming to terms, geologically speaking, with the fact that it's just had a big movement, big event on it, a lot of movement, and now the whole thing has to readjust. But rocks don't readjust to a big earthquake without making a lot of fuss about it. Mm -hmm. And so... There was a very big event, a 7.5, quite shortly afterwards on a different fault. So the thought experiment I usually do with my students is I have a few of them line up in a line. And you don't even have to have them linking arms, although that works quite nicely, as long as they're standing with their arms side by side and just basically touching elbows and then You have to have one who's comfortable being poked on one end and you just gently push them and you push and they lean into the next student and then everybody readjusts down the line. Mm -hmm. You
0: can imagine if one of them were slightly off balance already when that happened, Mm -hmm. that instead of just kind of a slight wave going through the line of students, one of them could topple over or they could shuffle their feet a whole lot more than everyone else.
1: Exactly. And so... That's what I tend to talk about when I'm talking about another fault readjusting. And in this case, a second fault on the East Anatolian fault system readjusted in a very big way and gave us a 7.5 magnitude earthquake. And then we had a bit more of a ripple effect as everything else on that fault system came to terms with its new existence. Mm -hmm. What?
0: Is the experience like on the ground during an earthquake? Is it for, and this is a very simplistic question or way to ask this question, I'm sure, but is it like the ground is bouncing up and down or is it like it's wibbly wobbly?
1: Well, I'll admit that I've never knowingly felt an earthquake because I actually have a reputation for sleeping through them. (laughs) The last earthquake event that was felt in Nebraska was the Pawnee earthquake in Oklahoma in 2016, in September Mm. 2016. And I woke up to my son poking me going, "Mummy, Mummy, there's been an earthquake. And I said, don't be (laughs) ridiculous. Go back to bed.
0: We live in Nebraska. We don't have them here.
1: He was quite little at the time. But the technical answer I can give you with the caveat that I've slept through several is that people don't tend to feel the up and down motion of the events as much as the later rolling of the ground and the side-to-side of the ground because those are the movements of the surface waves that come in a little bit later and they're actually the ones that do the most damage. Mm -hmm. There are a couple different kinds of earthquake waves that have different motions. First arrivals go up and down. Secondary arrivals make a motion that looks a bit like a sine wave.
0: Mm, so like a, a wave in the ocean. No, because okay. waves, of the, yes. waves of
1: the ocean make circular motions like a sine wave.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. I will correct you. Yes,
1: <laughs> I will correct you, good professor. And then the surface waves, there are two kinds of surface wave. One does the round and round, and that's the rolling, and that's the one we tell is like, a, like the wave of the ocean because the particles of water go round and round and round and then one makes this kind of writhing like a snake. Mm -hmm. Those two are the ones that do the most damage, and that's usually what people feel.
0: Oh, really? That seems counterintuitive to me, that the back and forth like the snake would do more damage than more of an up and down sort of... I I guess that will more tear a foundation apart.
1: It depends on the building codes. So that's actually something that's been really difficult in Turkey because as buildings have collapsed, we have seen from local... Scientists and local construction engineers that buildings were not constructed to code. And that is one of the things that's been so difficult and so damaging and so absolutely awful in Turkey that corners were cut.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's uh, turn to the Turkey and Syria earthquake in specific. As you note, we're hearing a lot of reports that a lot of the buildings and construction just wasn't up to a code. Um, there have been, the news is reporting, a lot of arrests that uh, the government is starting to uh, undertake and putting my law professor and political scientist hat on, who who knows uh, whether uh, I'm sure that part of that is actual wrongdoing. Part of that could also very well be the government looking to scapegoat and looking for ways to defer responsibility. Very likely, both of those are true in different parts, but we're not here for me to talk about um, uh, the, the political process. Why, why was this so bad an earthquake in every sense of the word
1: i think there are probably three things that i could talk about here and i'll a couple we've we've mentioned but very very shallow compared to a lot of big events so 7 to 10 kilometers in some cases on a section of the fault that hasn't ruptured since the 1800s so that's a long time for a fault
0: and does that tend to make these events more significant when they do yes, happen? Yes,
1: because you've got again. I'm going back to your piece of wood. If you bent it quickly, mm-hmm. or if you built up that stress, you would get a different result. Mm-hmm. I'll go home and try it if you don't believe me.
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but point three is actually that as some of the some more of the data as are coming out of this area. It looks like it wasn't just one piece of the one segment of the fault that ruptured, but it was actually much, much, much longer piece of fault, three pieces of fault that all went bang at once. Oh, really? And that's incredibly unusual. We talk about gaps, seismic gaps, which is another piece of terminology I'll throw at you, but I'll explain it, which basically means a piece of fault that hasn't had an earthquake on it Mm -hmm. in X many years, where X is usually a couple of hundred. So, you would say, I would expect that this would be the next bit to go bang, but I can't tell you exactly when it will go bang, but then three pieces went bang all at once. Mm -hmm. So, so that's is
0: it right to characterize this as one earthquake? I guess, I'll, did it have an epicenter or was it hyperfocus, I think is the term that you use? Hypercenter. Hypercenter, okay. A hypercenter, or was it three separate events that all happened, uh, were triggered by one common factor?
1: We think, looking at the data sets that are available right now, that it, the 7.8 is one event that ruptured an enormous amount of fault. Mm -hmm. because the technique that's most appropriate to this is looking at different radar images. We have a a satellite called Sentinel. You can program it to take the pictures you want it to take. So we have a radar image. We can build data sets of how the land surface has moved. You get a shiny piece of data called an interferogram, and that will tell you how much of the land surface moved in one go. Mm -hmm. Right. So as far as we can tell, it's one event.
0: What about? I I know this isn't necessarily your uh, scientific field of expertise, but what about the the human factors? We've we've mentioned the construction codes. Um, are there things that were done poorly that could have been done better?
1: Yes, I think that it is very telling that one of the few buildings that is still standing in one of the areas that was really badly hit badly affected by the damage is the construction engineer's main headquarters. Very telling. But some of the imagery coming out of some of the very badly damaged areas suggests that reinforced concrete, which should be used, was not correctly put together. And instead of real reinforced concrete, you're seeing scaffolding with boulders in it which does not meet anybody's description of reinforced concrete Mm -hmm. and so there is a reason that there are things like you don't put facades on buildings in earthquake prone areas because then the second you start shaking the building the facade delaminates and Mm -hmm. it kills people there's a reason that you build with reinforced concrete and you don't build really super high buildings unless you absolutely have to. The Japanese are very, very good at earthquake-prone technology. They are obviously a very earthquake-prone country. It's perfectly possible to do so. And it does look like a lot of corners were cut.
0: hmm It's fascinating listening and hearing you talk about just the the photos of the construction and what we can tell from that. And certainly going back and figuring out what happened in any disaster like this, where you have the built world, uh, man-made features, being able to reconstruct, uh, that, that's a science all unto itself. I, I know I, uh, A year or two ago, I got pretty deep into the weeds and some of the structural engineering in the Florida condominium collapse. And just the being able to go back and piece together what was done, what wasn't done and figure out where certain things were placed, where they should have been placed differently. It's just absolutely fascinating. it it also just bears observation the the regions where this happened a lot of americans aren't necessarily all that familiar with the world this is not like the ancient ruins area that you would go for historical purposes this is modern contemporary construction and civilization and we we would expect uh standard building codes and an understanding of uh, the geology that they were working with
1: yes the I will absolutely highlight that there are very very many extremely skilled seismologists in Turkey in the Turkish Institutes of Seismology and they have been saying for some time just like the international agencies the USGS for example this is a concern this these faults are a concern the East Anatolian, its sister, the North Anatolian Fault, which does what it says on the tin and runs to the north of Turkey. These are dangerous faults. We talk a little bit about seismic hazard and seismic risk. The difference is that one is a geologic event or geologic problem. This is the hazard. The risk is the probability that the wretched Mm -hmm. thing will happen. And you, you put heat maps together essentially of where the problem areas are, and that guides where building codes should be imposed.
0: Another question that I know is stupid, but I need to ask just so that you can explain how wrong I am. You, you've explained that these events w- will happen with some periodicity, and that the longer it goes between events, uh, the more likely they are to be severe. Knowing that when these don't happen, can we like, drill into the ground to release the energy or something?
1: It's not as stupid a question as it sounds because it does come up from time to time. Are there ways that we can prevent, release the energy on this fault? Can, what can we do about it? And so far, the answer is no, there doesn't seem to be anything we can do except educate our people in the area, work on better building codes zone things a little more effectively, and also change our outreach patterns to different demographics. Because it also matters, I had a student working on this for a part of the US, it also matters how old you are, what your socioeconomic economic situation is, and what time of day the earthquake strikes as to what the human impact will be.
0: You expect most of those factors are reasonably intuitive. I mean, mm-hmm. Wealth and socioeconomic demographics have uh, clear impacts. To the time of day?
1: I know time of day was going to throw you a little bit. This was a study done specifically for Cascadia, Oregon specifically. But if in Oregon, if you are a young prof- youngish professional at work at two in the afternoon, the earthquake impact will not be as bad for you as if it was in seven in the evening and you were at home. Because it, you are safer in your building at work than you are at home.
0: Fascinating.
1: That is true for Seattle.
0: Mm-hmm. So you you could, I, I guess... One uh,
1: could do a similar study for Turkey.
0: Mm-hmm. At, at some level, we haven't. since we can't control what time of day an event like this is going to happen, it's uh, useful for modeling the potential impacts and where we might want to devote resources so that we understand that the housing is outstanding in this area, but the commercial centers, that's where the devastation would occur. That's where we need to focus our response resources and improving construction and things like that.
1: That is exactly what Matthew, my student, was trying to do. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Um, Should humans live on faults? I hope I don't have any Californians listening.
1: Well, I guess I'll turn the question back to you. Do we have enough space and selfless humans to make the most of the good space we have to avoid it?
0: Oh, no, that that's fascinating because we live in... I'm going to get myself in lots of trouble now. We we live uh, in Nebraska. Correct. One wonderful, wonderful place to live. Not many earthquakes, good, stable terra firma, but, but. Cascadia, Japan... Lots of parts of California. Oh, I don't like saying this. Turkey, Mediterranean coast. I mean, th- this is just, these are wonderful places to, to live. And it's not just in terms of uh, the square miles, uh, number of acres of places that we have to put people. It's also, at some level, quality of life. It's just nice to live in the mountains, but also lots of access to water and highly productive land and things like that. Are areas prone to seismic activity more often, either socially or economically desirable places to live?
1: I think in the case of some of the Mediterranean areas, I think the answer is probably yes. And I think that it's a An interesting point to debate over perhaps longer than we have here that the stable continental interiors geologically don't always have the water supply, the aesthetics and so on and so on and so forth but they don't always have the very large amenities that Mm -hmm. some of us would want. And sometimes people don't have a choice, mm, right. And there's that as well,
0: yeah, absolutely. I want to, as we start to uh, move to the end of our discussion, just ask about your research and the field generally. What is your uh, I, I expect that if, uh, I were to say, oh, car, she's she studies earthquakes. She's a, a structural geologist. She studies rocks. Probably it's more specific than that,
1: maybe a fraction more specific. If I turned it back on you and said, "Gus, he studies the law."
0: Yes, a, a, a <laughs> little more specific than that. So, uh, what, so what, what do I? Yes, what, um, what sort of work do you do?
1: I used to work in the oil industry. I'll come clean. Um, I have since seen the light and take a lot of the skills that I learned in the oil industry. One of my projects right now is looking at geologic carbon sequestration. I don't think that geologic carbon sequestration is the be all and end all of our climate problems.
0: So this is the idea of pumping carbon dioxide into rock formations to lock it away in the ground instead of in the atmosphere.
1: Yes. When you look at how much carbon dioxide you can get out of the atmosphere and get safely store in the ground. There are a number of obstacles to be able to overcome between A and B. Mm-hmm. But what I am trying to do with one of my projects is to be able to take a look at some of the rocks in various different areas of the world and think about whether it's possible, profitable, or even economically viable, if it's not profitable, to be able to store that carbon dioxide in rocks in the ground. And that's been an easy pivot for me in some ways, because it takes the skills I learned in the, in, in the oil industry and applies it to something that I believe in.
0: What about in the uh, area of, again, I don't know the right terminology, so I'm just going to say earthquake studies. Um, what, what are some of the, the pressing questions uh, that the field is trying to understand?
1: Seismology is the word you're looking for. Earthquake studies, seismology, Uh, big pressing questions, I think, are really moving towards how, on the one hand, the science question is very much, can we get closer and closer and closer to any form of prediction? Mm -hmm. What's been done in California, Washington, and Oregon is something called Shake Alert, which at least when an event happens and is picked up by the warning systems, Can give people two or three in a couple of cases, it's two minutes, which is could be the difference between life and death. Warning that an event has happened might give you a chance to get to somewhere safe. Mm -hmm. That's happened in the last couple of years, and that's huge progress. Mm -hmm. The other side of the coin, rather than moving towards prediction, is just understanding why some faults move in these big bangs and some faults just kind of wander along and don't do these big bangs. And that is something to do with the rock type, but we're not always terribly sure. And then there's a third arm that works with the civil engineers and the construction engineers and thinks very carefully about building code. And that should, I think, be a collaboration between geo and engineer.
0: Yeah. And what one of the fascinating and at once, I'll just say really humbling, but also scary aspects of everything that you just said about what the study is, the questions that the science is asking, these happen and they're going to happen. Mm -hmm. And the question is, we live on a dangerous planet. How do we live Mm -hmm. successfully on a dangerous planet? Well, Cara, thank you for taking the time. Um, I I wish sincerely it was a conversation not prompted by so unfortunate uh, a tragedy. But uh, nonetheless, I've learned a a great deal. And I, I think when things like this happen, asking what actually happened and why and taking a moment to learn from it is an important thing to do.
1: I agree with you. Thank you for having me.
0: Tech Refactored is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series hosted by the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. The NGTC is a partnership led by the College of Law in collaboration with the Colleges of Engineering, Business, and Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Tech Refactored is hosted and executive produced by Gus Hurwitz. James Fleegi is our producer. Additional production assistance is provided by the NGTC staff. You can find supplemental information for this episode at the links provided in the show notes. To stay up to date on the latest happenings within the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, visit our website at ngtc.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNL NGTC.